Welcome to the DTB podcast for March 2022, volume 60, number three. My name's David Fazakli and I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief, and today I come to you from a broom cupboard. Yes, you are sounding a little more echoey than than usual. Yes. Where are you? Where are you talking from? Um, I'm actually from one of the clinical rooms at, at work, but we have builders. We usually do this at home, but um, we're having a wall taken down as you do. So um, I thought it better probably to come here. So a slight echo, better than rumbling drills. Indeed. Okay, well, thank you for joining us for this podcast in which we'll talk about the March issue of DTB. Uh, we're recording this on the 8th of February. Uh, and the good news, I think, is that in the UK, we've reached the date, well, certainly in my part of the UK, we've reached the date at which the sun now sets after 5pm. And I don't know, somehow that seems important. Um, the days are getting longer. Right, before we get to the content, uh, I wondered if we should talk about a study that's made it in the news here today. Uh, paracetamol and blood pressure, uh, article published in Circulation. Uh, James, have you read it? Um, what do you make of it? And what do you think? Yes, very interesting study. This is the PATH-BP trial. Um, very simple study. They took 110 adult patients um, with high blood pressure. About a third weren't, weren't treated. And they simply randomized them to have paracetamol at a sort of good going dose, you know, two tablets four times a day, four grams a day, or placebo um, with a crossover um, following it. And what they found was that people's blood pressure went up by an average of five millimeters systolic um, daytime ambulatory. And the mean 24 hour ambulatory systolic went up by four millimeters of mercury. Um, so, uh, we have another situation where the analgesia that we thought was safe for people with high blood pressure perhaps um, isn't quite as safe as we once thought. I mean, there's been some suspicions for a while that maybe paracetamol long term in a regular dose is not as uh, risk free as we first thought. Um, and this seems to confirm something around that. It does. In fact, if you go back to the nice guidance on osteoarthritis, the committee there were quite um, concerned about paracetamol. And actually, I think they suggested it shouldn't be used first line in the management of osteoarthritis. So there have been some rumblings for some time. But even in the American Heart Association's report in November 2021, so just two or three months ago, they were talking about how 21% of US adults didn't know that paracetamol does not raise blood pressure. Um, and yet here we are um, with a study demonstrating that there may be an issue. I thought what was particularly interesting is that one patient in the study was withdrawn because they had severely elevated blood pressure with a clinical blood pressure of 185 over 76 on day 14 of their paracetamol treatment. And that remitted after they stopped it. So it may be in amongst the sort of mild rising in most people, actually there is, are one or two people who may have significant response to paracetamol, which we probably ought to be aware of. So perhaps this is a study we should dig into in a little more detail in a uh, future issue of, of DTB. But I guess that, you know, the bottom line is, you know, if we had concerns about any drug that raised blood pressure by this amount, we would advise people not to use it in... <laughs> people with hypertension? It's a really difficult one because what this study didn't show was whether this actually has any impact on outcomes. And you know what we're like in DTB about proxy outcomes. So yes, it raises blood pressure. Um, and 
if we were to sort of take that five millimeter of 24 hour ambulatory rise uh, sort of across the board, that's sort of equivalent to an increase in stroke mortality by about 15% and total mortality by about 7%. So it could be significant, but we just don't know whether that's the case or not. But we have, I think, in the past talked about our concerns over non-steroidals doing exactly the same thing, both attenuating the effect of antihypertensives and also possibly putting your blood pressure up. So I guess if we're being being fair, we ought to also add a bit of a warning to paracetamol. Yeah, that's a, actually that's a very good point. Um, so yes, although I think we do now have studies that have shown that uh, the use of anti-inflammatories do lead to poorer outcomes, whereas this study only looked at, at blood pressure as a rise as an outcome. But I, I think what we're learning is, um, and I think this is something Andrew Herxheim used to say, there's no such thing as a safe drug, um, just safe uh, clinicians. And I think it's something about really making sure that we never take drugs unless they're entirely required, because there's always something in the background that may be an issue with them. And certainly a note of caution, if you've got a person who's being treated for hypertension and they need regular analgesia, there's probably another one that we're going to have concerns about and would want to use very cautiously in this population. I think so. And I think increasingly we're going to be perhaps asking patients to monitor their blood pressure. Most of them do now. About 75% of the population now have blood pressure machines who um, have hypertension. And it may be that we need to say, look, you perhaps ought to monitor your blood pressure if you start taking paracetamol regularly, just to make sure that it's not having an adverse effect. Okay, thank you for that quick overview. We'll, we'll come back to that one in a in a future issue. So for this month, we're going to talk about our editorial, uh, look at a DTB select item, and then a quick look at our, our main review. So let's start with David Erskine's editorial on inhaler devices. Uh, do you want to say a bit more about it? Yeah, so this is um, a target uh, that the NHS uh, has to try and reduce its carbon um, emissions. And the NHS as a whole is responsible for about 4% of the nation's total emissions of, of uh, greenhouse gases. So the NHS is responsible for 4% and of the NHS's emissions, about three to 4% are thought to be due to inhalers that we use for respiratory conditions. So uh, as early as 2018, the House of Commons Environmental Audit Committee recommended that inhalers should be recycled and by 2022, at least 50% should be of low global warming potential. Um, and there's no doubt about it, you know, we use an awful lot of MDIs um, in the NHS. And what was interesting, I thought, when I when I you know when you read this afresh, is is the difference in the carbon emissions from from <laughs> different inhalers. And, Absolutely, and even the same well, same inhaler, meter dose inhaler, but from different manufacturers has quite a different output in terms of well, measured in kilograms of carbon dioxide equivalents. So it seemed to range from 25 to 50 to 10. Yes, that's it. I mean, I'm an Aventolin 200 dose inhaler, probably about 25 kilos of CO2. Now, obviously, the inhaler doesn't weigh 25 kilos because the thing about the hydrofluorocarbons that MDIs use is that they are much more powerful greenhouse gases than CO2, about 3,000 times more powerful than CO2. And that's the issue we have. 
And the thing to remember is um, a gallon of petrol tends to uh, be equivalent to 11 kilos of CO2. So that gives you an idea. That sort of, so in other words, a ventilator inhaler is equivalent to two gallons of petrol. So you can work out um, that uh, a ventilator inhaler is equivalent to a car traveling 80 miles. So, you know, if a patient is going using up four of those inhalers in a year, which would be a nicely controlled um, patient, then that's going to be a significant mileage that we can take off the road, as it were, if we can move them to a, a, a non-hydrocarbon um, dry powder inhaler. So there, I guess there are two actions that this article said Shora raises. One is, can you use the lowest um, carbon-containing inhaler, or can you transfer people to dry powder inhalers, which are a significant lower? Clearly, there are some patients who can't use the dry powder devices. Yes, of course, if you use a spacer, um, if you, you know, and particularly high-dose um, beclometasone or any of the steroids, there's a risk that you'll get oral thrush if you don't use a spacer. So they may well need to continue that. Um, and obviously, there's a big issue with uh, proper uh, use of the inhalers. We know how important it is that people's technique is good. So there is going to be some implications on staffing time required to get that right. Now, I know that there are videos online now to help people um, learn how to use their inhaler, but there's going to be a significant issue. And I'll be honest, I think certainly in our patch, this is one thing that has actually um, been disrupted considerably by the pandemic. We found it very difficult to look after asthmatics to do things like peak flow meeting and things with them or spirometry because of the issues with aerosol in our practices. So I think this is something that has taken a back seat um, and it's something which we probably need to really address in the next next year. And perhaps a fair point that the, that the, the editorial is, is suggesting that we haven't made as much progress in this area as perhaps we should have done by now. Exactly, exactly. And it's, and it's fascinating to look at how we differ from Scandinavia and Europe. I mean, about 70% of the inhalers used in the UK, well, in England, should I say, have been MDIs, metered dose inhalers, but actually in Scandinavia, that number is only 10%. So we can do it. And in fact, I'm just aware before we came on air that uh, Thorax has um, just uh, published a paper where they've looked at the transfer and have found that it, it can be done without harming patients. They looked at the issues around that. So it's all there for us to do. It's just something we need to get to grips with now. But obviously there are resource implications. I mean, people have expressed concerns that if you move to different inhalers, they might be more expensive and therefore put up uh, prescribing costs. And also the fact that it might take more input from clinical time to make sure that the transfer is as safe as it can be. So those issues that, although the global warming effect is important, there are other competing issues that we need to take into account. Totally, absolutely right. So there are staffing implications. There's the cost because actually some of these can be higher than the MDIs. And also there's this, you know, dry powder inhalers themselves through the manufacturing technique can be equivalent to up to six kilograms of CO2 each anyway. So it's about getting that all right. And most importantly, um, also preventing hospital emissions from asthma. Okay, thank you very much. Um, and maybe we'll come back and, and look at progress later in the year. So let's turn to our um, DTP Select summary 
this month, which is we've picked one on medicine-related harms, which was picking up some work done in New Zealand. So what was the study about? Yes, this is a nice study from the BJGP retrospective records review of about 9,000 patients in 44 practices, which made me think they must be quite small practices in New Zealand. But anyway, uh, covers 2011 to 2013. So it's quite old data, I have to say. But they basically looked at harms that had been uh, affected patients, and they sort of called them minor, moderate, and severe, depending on how bad they were. And what they found that over that two-year period, there were 175,000 prescriptions issued to these patients, about 846 different medications. And that just shows how complex modern medicine is. And about 11% of patients experienced some sort of harm. 80% of that was minor, things like cough with an ACE inhibitor, and 20% they were moderately severe or severe harms experienced, with 18 cases needing hospitalization, which was about 0.2%. So, you know, significant issue. And if you look at sort of the bottom line, if you like, what it boils down to is that the overall instance of harm is about 16 preventable medicine-related harms per 1,000 patient years, or 1.6, 1 to 2 for every 100 patient years. And that's worth thinking of as a GP because that what we're saying is every year, every 100 patients that you prescribe to, one of them will have some sort of preventable harm. And that's, you know, or one or two. So that's, you know, worth, worth always keeping our eyes open and being careful when we prescribe. And it's, it seemed, if you did the math, that the preventable harms were about a fifth of all harms that they recorded. So again, you know, one in five harms is preventable. It is. And of course, what's interesting is that um, under the cardiovascular issues, statins were quite a significant cause of harms, uh, around 9% to go with antihypertensives. I did wonder whether that's related to um, people's concerns about statins, which I have to say, in the, personally, in the last five or so years, have melted away. You know, we do not see people coming to see us with muscle aches and pains anymore with statins. Now, whether that's they've stopped stopped trying to come and see me with them, or whether that really is a case where it was a nocebo effect and and you know it's settled, I don't know. But um, interesting study. That, you know, it, it's you know, it was a retrospective record review. These were looked at by GPs, so you can always criticise it. But as I say, the overall level instance of harm seemed to be very similar to other studies that have looked into this. And as you say, it was it was from the perspective of the researchers. Uh, you just wonder, had you asked the patient's experience of the harms, um, would it have been any different? Of course, we'll not know because they didn't do that. But but I just wonder whether um, categorising it from a healthcare professional's point of view is would give, give you a slightly different take than it would if you'd asked patients what they felt about it. I, I totally agree. I mean, one of the minor harms was weight gain with the oral contraceptive pill. I know some people would not call that a minor issue. So you're absolutely right. This was very much from a doctor uh, point of view rather than a patient one. Okay, thank you very much. And finally, let's look at our main article. This is one of our new drug reviews. Uh, Again, do you want to say a bit more about this one? Yes, so um, those of a nervous disposition perhaps um, ought to leave the room because we're going to talk about spontaneous bowel motions. Um, But this is naldemidine, which is a new um, 
laxative for patients with opioid-induced constipation. So there are already quite a few of these. We've got um, naloxagol and methyl naltrexone bromide, and they all work by uh, working on the peripheral mu receptor. They're antagonists on the peripheral mu receptor, which is the receptor found in the gut, which is thought to be the cause for opioid-induced constipation. Previously, and I think we looked at naloxagol, um, and I think at the time that, that the evidence for that was largely in people with chronic non-cancer pain. The studies for naldemidine are a bit broader and included both cancer and non-cancer? Yes, I keep wanting to call them compost one. <laughs> but they're compose studies, and there were five of these, and the first three were in non-cancer pain, and the last two were in cancer pain. But I have to say the, the compose four and five, the last two on cancer pain, wasn't a huge number. Um, 193 patients in COMPOSE 4, and then there was a option to move into COMPOSE 5, which was an open-label study for 12 weeks. So whilst we've got getting on to a, over 1,000, I think about 2,000 patients in the COMPOSE 1, 2, and 3 studies, which were non-cancer pain, it was only a very small number in those with cancer. And the sort of benefits, I mean, they're quite complicated outcome measures. Yeah, so it was um, at least three spontaneous bowel motions per week. That's sort of headline. As you say, it got more complicated, but that's the one I could get my head around. So COMPOSE 1 and 2 were looking at efficacy. They were randomized controlled trials, placebo, just 12 weeks. Outcome was at least three of these SBMs, spontaneous bowel motions. And... Uh, what it demonstrated basically was in both the studies, you got a number needed to treat of between five and eight um, when it comes to achieving that outcome. So in other words, you have to treat five to eight people for 12 weeks with naldemidine for one of them to benefit and have three spontaneous bowel moments per week. That makes sense compared to placebo. And it's worth pointing um, out that these were people who'd already been tried on standard laxatives? Yes. So these are patients who've already had trial with a standard laxative. I mean, like a lot of studies, and I, I remember reading this somewhere, the placebo response was pretty good. So 35% of people on the placebo achieved at least three spontaneous bowel movements. So, um, but a definite benefit compared to placebo in these two trials, COMPOSE 1 and COMPOSE 2. And harms because although this is a drug that's set out to improve your um, gastrointestinal um, difficulties of, of related to constipation they in fact do cause gastrointestinal side effects <laughs> yes in fact abdominal pain nausea vomiting uh, about three percent of people um, have to actually discontinue the trial completely because of that and if you look at the overall uh, harm rate about 15 percent of patients um, in Compose one and compose two in the naldemidine group had side effects compared to 7% of the placebo group. So that's a number needed to harm of about 13 over those 12 weeks. So I guess if you do the net benefit, there is, there is you know, NNT of five, naldemidine is harm of 13, but it's, it's not a miraculous cure. And um, it also seemed to be that we have no direct comparisons with laxatives themselves and no direct comparisons with the other uh, similar acting drugs. No, and this is this is the issue really, is that they have not been compared with any other 
uh, drug. They are quite expensive, about 40 or so pounds a month, compared to Docusate, which might be at most nine pounds a month. So expensive compared to what we already using, um, and uh, you know, quite a significant side effect issue with perhaps not a, a hugely beneficial therapeutic response either. Yes, and the, and the only other question I had had was where does Nice see or the the you know, the approval agencies? Where do they see these drugs? Yes, so both the um, Scottish team and Nice for England both recommend we can use this drug um, following the, the use of a first of all a primary laxative, if you like. Yes, so Nice has recommended it can be used uh, in patients with opioid-induced constipation if standard treatment has failed. Um, so it, it is there to be used um, if we are struggling. But I have to say my own personal experience with opioid-induced constipation is that uh, it's as much about the advice you give patients and about the importance of taking laxatives regularly as, as actually the type of laxative that's being used. So overall, I mean, we've we've had the other two, and one's an injection, but the, but the other's oral. We've had them around for a while. Have you ever prescribed either of them? No, I've never ever had the need to. Um, I find that usually an osmotic laxative or docusate, um, as the BNF suggests, usually works very well. And it is about making sure patients continue to drink if they can. And it's really important that they continue to use them regularly. That's the bit where things usually go wrong. Okay, thank you very much. You can find these and all our articles on our website at dtb.bmj.com. Thank you to everyone who's left us a comment. It's always great to have your feedback and suggestions. And if you want to let us know what you think of our podcasts, you can do this on the iTunes site. And there's a link to the DTB iTunes page on the notes that accompany this podcast. Alternatively, you can email us directly at dtb.bmj.com. So many thanks for listening and we hope you'll be able to join us in a month's time for April's podcast in which we'll start the celebrations of DTB's 60th anniversary. Thank you.